First Thessalonians uh, is a book of five chapters. Second Thessalonians is a book of three chapters. And so it's only uh, eight chapters, but it is jam-packed full of depth and character and challenge. And as I was studying this week, having no idea that our family was going to go through some of the things that we've gone through the last 48 hours or so, I, I stood before our church family at 8.30 this morning and said, this passage is for me. And so I'm praying that it's not only for me and my family, but it's for you as well. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're going to talk about faithful in the middle of conflict. Faithful in the middle of conflict. And I don't know all of us. Every person under the sound of my voice, uh, you're either in one right now, coming out of one, or about to head into one. That's just sort of our life. And, and conflict can make us stronger if we lean into Jesus. And it's my prayer that that is what we will learn today. Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. I thought about that, that all the places that I've preached the last 33 years, all of the people that uh, have touched my life and the people's lives that I have touched. And sometimes through preaching or sometimes through visiting a hospital or being there when someone has loss in their family, I don't know. But, but sometimes you ever feel like everything you've done is just in vain? Well, that's the devil talking. That's the enemy trying to discourage you because what I do know, Paul is letting those first century believers know that my coming to you was not in vain. There was a purpose. And there was a plan. Because if you were here last week, you'll remember that Paul had a lot of enemies in Thessalonica. And he only got to stay there three Sabbath days. So three weeks, and then he sort of got run out of town. So they're trying to discredit him in his absence. And so now Paul writes this letter of encouragement from Corinth to the church at Thessalonica. But yet, Paul recognized that if he was discredited, maybe the gospel message would be discredited. But yet, we know now, and we have the benefit of God's Word, that both Jews and Gentiles were saved, and a church was established at Thessalonica. Because every place that Paul goes, every person that Paul touches in Thessalonica declares that his adventure was not a failure. Now, this is where I need to speak personally to somebody here today or somebody watching online. Is that maybe thus far in your journey, you consider it a failure. Everything you've tried to do, and maybe it's been one bad choice or one bad decision after another after another. But I want you to know that your adventure is not a failure. Because if you are a child of God, there is a purpose and a plan even when you lose. Even when things don't turn out the way that you want them to turn out. Paul later on wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So what you are doing right now, if you're doing it for Jesus, it is not in vain. And you don't have to go halfway around the world in order for it to count. It can count you simply walking across the street to your neighbor here. And then if God calls you like God called Sarah Warnock to go around the world, then you do it. But all the way through it, know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Look at verse 2. 
But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, I just talked about that, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Now again, contextually, you go back to the first century when all this was happening. I read a little bit of this last week from Acts chapter 16, and and it records that the suffering included a public flogging, and then their feet were placed in stocks while they were confined in the city's inner prison. Even though Paul was a Roman citizen, he endured the indignity and the persecution of public humiliation. I don't know what you're going through today, but I think about in the midst of much conflict. Maybe you got a conflict at your job right now and you just don't know how to handle it. Maybe you've got a situation with your family and what at one time was beautiful and wonderful and now it's gone sideways and you really don't know what to say or do next. All of us walk through much conflict. Paul is trying to help us to understand that you do not allow injustice to keep you from preaching or sharing the gospel. And I know that's easier said than done because all of us can get our feelings hurt. All of us can say, you know what, if you're going to be that way, I'm going to take my stuff and I'm going to go home. But is that how Paul responded? Absolutely not. Paul took it all in stride knowing this is my calling. This is what God has called me to do. So how is Paul able to do that? The answer is real simple. Philippians chapter 4 verse 13 I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Even when you're going through a test, even when you're going through a struggle that is not of your doing, because sometimes we get thrown a curveball and we don't have any idea where it came from. Y'all remember James, the half-brother of Jesus? He was an elder at the church in Jerusalem in the first century. He would later write in James chapter 1 these words, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, before I get to verse 4, let me just preach a moment. Because when I read this this past week, my dad had yet to have this stroke. That didn't happen till Friday. I'd already prepared my sermon notes. I'd already prepared Pro Presenter. I'd already finished all that. But then I got to thinking about it that after my situation happens with my family, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Because it's very easy that when life starts happening to you and it's unplanned, you want to take your toys and go home, or you want to wrap yourself up in a ball somewhere and tell everybody to leave you alone. But the testing of your faith can produce steadfastness. Now, verse 4, then let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. Now, what does that mean to us today? It means you're going to learn more in your time of testing than you would have ever learned in your time of ease. When everything's going your way. And it's easy to praise God when all your bills are paid and your body's healthy. But it's when life sort of turns on you and against you and you start walking through the test, you find out what you're made of. You find out if faith is real. You find out if the Word of God is truth when you're walking through those moments. I believe James is trying to tell us in verse 4, it makes a mature believer lacking in nothing. 
So despite what some of Paul's accusers said and did in the first century, he not only preached the gospel when it was easy or convenient, he knew what it was like to speak boldly when he was in much conflict. That word conflict, agon in the Greek, contains a metaphor that's drawn from what we would call athletic games or the arenas. It's a place of contest. It's a race. It's a struggle. It's a battle. Now, I'm not going to get you to raise your hand, but if we were all very honest this morning here on campus and at home, and I said, lift up your hand if you're going through a race, a struggle, or a battle, the vast majority of us would have to raise our hand because there are things happening that you hadn't posted on Facebook. There are things going on in your life that social media knows nothing about, but you and Jesus are going through this. And not only are you going through it, you're going to make it. You're going to do more than just survive. You're going to thrive. Because there's going to be lessons learned through the conflict that you would have never, ever learned otherwise. Now, we may want the ease of learning the lesson without the conflict. But that's just like reading an academic book. Until you have experience, you don't know what the academic book means. So you got to live it. You have to walk through it. And then, as a follower of Jesus, we recognize that sometimes God will allow tests to come to see if our faith is true. Look at verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Because the gospel in the, is true in its source, it's pure in its motive, it's dependable in its method, and Paul's enemies tried to discredit him with lies of accusations and heresy. And of course, we're talking about the first century, and how does it, how does it resonate with us 20 centuries later? In the first century, as now in the 21st century, Orthodox Jews did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And for the vast majority of Israel today, they do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, there are Messianic Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and they combine the beauty of the old with that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and, and when they die one day, they'll get to go to heaven. But in the first century, Paul would go to the synagogues, and they would have discourse and debate. He would say that Jesus is the Messiah, and the rabbis would say that he's not, and they would go back and forth, back and forth. But the key and difference of the first century between now is that if you did it in the first century, they might kill you. They might get you out and string you up or stone you to death or hang you on a cross. But Paul was faithful to do it no matter what. It goes on to say, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. And we're not speaking to please man, but we speak to please God who tests our hearts. And maybe you're walking through that time of testing today, and I know that it's not easy. And the more difficult and the heavier the weight is, the more that we must rely on God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified that is a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. So it reiterates the point that Paul was willing to preach Christ crucified no matter where he was, whether I'm in Corinth or Ephesus or Philippi or Galatia or anywhere I am, I'm going to preach Christ crucified. And most of Paul's life after he got saved, he was in trouble all the time. 
Everywhere he went, they were, he was under a death sentence. He, there was an arrest warrant out for him simply because he was telling people about Jesus. That's why he wrote 1 Corinthians 9, 16, For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He says, no matter what I'm going through, no matter what I'm having to battle through, I am called to preach the gospel. Look at verse 5. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, that God is witness. Now, if you have had any type of church history classes, you would remember that there were competing religions throughout the first century. And a lot of those ministers that represented those religions, they were motivated by power, they were motivated by greed or even gain. But you look at the writings of Paul, and you look at his life, he never compromised the gospel with flattery or insincerity just in order to get results. He never preached for greed. He had one motive, to tell people about Jesus. And it's very, very easy when you are going through conflict to get distracted and get away from the main thing. And the main thing that you and I have been called to do is to be ambassadors or representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what we're going through. And that's tough sometimes, isn't it? Because all of us feel like I need to take a step back, I need to catch my breath. And there may be times that we must do that. But let your one motive and motivation be to tell people about Jesus. Paul goes on to record in verse 6, nor did we seek glory from people. Paul knew he was not the center of the universe. And whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as an apostles of Christ, he could have pulled out his apostle card and said, you got to do what I'm telling you to do because I'm an apostle of Jesus. I'm hanging out with Matthias. I'm, I'm hanging out with Luke. I'm, I'm hanging out with John. But he didn't. So be very careful when we inflate because of our own ego who we are. And we think that because of who we are, we are to get benefits. We are to get blessings more than others. Paul worked hard. He was very deliberate not to give his Jewish critics any ground for accusation. And I just want to encourage you on your jobs and wherever you find yourself, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. But they don't glorify you. They glorify our Heavenly Father. And this is another area that really burdened me that he never wanted to be seen as a burden to those that he served. And Paul knew that the churches were poor. He was not going to get a grand salary so he could have a big house. No, he said, I'm going to remain humble and I'm going to remain a tent maker so that there's no cost for me coming and planting these churches. So what was Paul's response to each church that he planted? Look at verse 7. It says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. I'm so glad that Paul did not give us the example of being a dictator. He gave us the example of being a shepherd who took care of his sheep. And even sometimes being willing to leave the 99 and go get the one who has found itself lost or scared, or fearful, or frightened. How was Paul able to do that? I think he exhibited the fruit of the Spirit. 
In Galatians, he talks about that, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, and then gentleness. I love that word, gentleness. It means humility and meekness. Meekness is never, ever defined as weakness. Meekness is defined as strength under control. That was the Apostle Paul. He also exhibited what we would call self-control, and against such things there is no law. Which brings me to the question, do you have the fruit of the Spirit in your life so that when conflict comes, you can handle it? Because if you are filled with the fruit of the Spirit, then you can walk in the Spirit and you don't have to fulfill the desires of your flesh. And I'm not talking about sexual immorality. I'm just talking about being a citizen of glory. That you're letting your light shine. People can see Jesus in you. They see a difference inside of you. Look at verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. What a pastor's heart. He says, I not only sense the responsibility and necessity is laid upon me, and woe to me if I don't preach to you the gospel, but I've also understood that you are very dear to us. Paul was willing to give everything, even his own life, so that others might know Jesus. Now, I sense that as a pastor, as a daddy, and as a husband to a point. I don't think I'm where Paul was in the first century, but there's a verse of Scripture that just messes with me from Romans chapter 9, and I want to share it with you, and maybe it'll mess with you as well. Because Paul loved the Jewish people so very much, he says this, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. You know what he's saying? He said, I would die and go to hell so that my brothers of blood, my sisters of blood could be saved. He said, I'm willing to be cursed. I'm willing to be Cut off for Jesus Christ. Cut off from Christ so that others that I love may know him. That's powerful. And I know that we as dads and husbands feel like, hey, I'd, I'd lay down my life for my family. I'd take a bullet for him or her. But I don't know if I'm to the point that I would die and go to hell so that others might be saved. But that's where Paul found himself. You see, after Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, he lived to die for others the way that Jesus lived to die for others. And so as I was pulling my sermon notes together, I said, I'm more like Mark 10, but I'm not even there yet, but this is where I aspire. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, meaning I'm willing to serve. I'm not here, I'm not arriving on the scene, so everybody will come to me, but because of my calling, I'm willing to go to them. You see, Paul had learned how to love unconditionally. And don't you know the people that were despising Paul and being critical of Paul? These are the very ones that he talked about in Romans chapter 9 that I'm willing to go to hell for them. I'm not talking about all the good guys. I'm not talking about all those who loved Paul and appreciated Paul's sacrifices. No, I'm talking about the ones who were critical. That if they'd had social media in the first century, they'd have wrote bad things about him and posted them. That's what I'm talking about. Paul says, those are the people that I love unconditionally. Verse 9. 
For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. He worked in a vocation so he would never be a burden to other people. Because the gospel didn't cost the Thessalonians a penny, but it cost the Apostle Paul everything. Are we ready to do that today? What if the Holy Spirit laid on our heart, sell everything you got, don't even put it in a U-Haul, put it in a suitcase, and I want you to go to the other side of the world. Would you be willing to go? And I know before Joe and I had children, I thought that might be part of what God was going to ask me to do, therefore asking Joe to do. And every time I went on a short-term mission trip and I would come home, Joe said, I had prayed that you didn't have a kid in your suitcase, that you hadn't brought somebody home that you felt sorry for and wanted us to take care of. She said, I just sort of knew, and I've known your heart, that, that that could possibly happen in our lives. What do you do when it comes to that moment? Look at verse 10. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Paul's talk matched up with his walk. His character and his conduct matched so he just didn't talk about Jesus. And it's easy for us to talk about Jesus. Oh, we use Jesus in every paragraph that we talk about. We just talk about Jesus all the time. But do we live for Jesus? Because there's a difference. And it costs us something when we live for him. So how about our character? We're talking about the character and integrity of Paul. He'd been gone 20 centuries. What about us today? How about our conduct? Because I believe, as you look into God's Word, that character and conduct mattered in the first century. Character and conduct should matter in the 21st century as well. So let me try to wrap it up and put a bow on it. Look at verse 11. For you know how, like a father with his children. So we, we heard the word mother a few moments ago in verse 7, a nursing mother. Paul compared himself to that as a shepherd. Here in verse 11, he refers to a father with children. A nursing mother suggests tenderness and affection. A father suggests wisdom and counsel. And when you put them together, there is completeness that we find, not only in Christ, but also in our families. And lastly, this morning, Paul goes on to explain that we exhorted each one of you. We encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner that's worthy of God. Part of my job description and when the pastor search committee and I began to talk six plus years ago, there were some things that were just givens that we as pastors are to do. But I think part of the unwritten job description that I'm called to do is to exhort you and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner that's worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Not Joel's kingdom and glory, but God's kingdom and glory. So how do we reach that place? How, how do we get to that point? we got to understand what our objective is and what our mission may be. And part of what we're called to do at First Baptist Athens is not just to get folks to be converted so we can get them into baptistry. We're called to make people into disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And that's a question for us here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Am I just a convert or am I a disciple?